From WAMU 88.5 at American University in Washington, welcome to the Kojo Namdi Show. Today we're going to be talking to local people in the Washington region who found themselves at the center of stories far bigger than they are. In just a bit, we're going to meet a 46-year veteran of the National Symphony Orchestra who's going to share with us a gift for playing the clarinet that once caught the ear of Aaron Copeland. But first, we're joined by Thomas Drake. He is a former senior official at the National Security Agency. Thomas Drake joins us in studio. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me again. If you have questions or comments, you can start calling now, 800-433-8850. Thomas, in 2010, you were indicted under the Espionage Act and faced 35 years in prison. Why? Well, I was a whistleblower at NSA, and over a number of years, blew the whistle on 9-11 intelligence failures, uh, massive multi-billion dollar fraud, waste, and abuse, and in particular, uh, secret surveillance programs, and went through every channel that existed. And it took the Obama administration to actually indict me. And you say you went through every channel that existed for those members of our audience who are not aware, who may not be aware of what those channels are. Well, as a whistleblower, there are designated channels in which you can bring to light um, suspected wrongdoing by the government, uh, violations of law or statute, uh, fraud, waste, and abuse, or threats to public safety or health. And I had gone to my immediate supervisor. I had gone to the Office of General Counsel. Um, ultimately went to the 2-9-11, um, became a material witness on 2-9-11 congressional investigations, both intelligence uh, committees, the oversight committees, as well as the Department of Defense, Office of Inspector General. And ultimately, you leaked some unclassified information. Faithful decision. It's called touching that third rail, especially when you work in the national security um, community and environment. And I did go to a reporter. Leaked some unclassified information yes. to a reporter. The government later classified the information. Allegedly, they retroactively classified it and said it was very tippy top, and that you know I was in possession of information that I w- for the purpose of disclosing it to people unauthorized to receive it. So Days that be- launched a criminal investigation and ended up facing you know a ten felony count indictment in April of 2010. Made very public, by the way, the first whistleblower since Daniel Ellsberg charged in like manner under the World War I era Espionage Act statute. Days before your trial was set to begin, the government dropped its case against you. At the time, was the prevailing interest in your case, in your view, centered around the issue of privacy? Of course, there was also allegations of overspending and abuse, but talk about privacy. I think there was an element at the time. It's certainly grown a lot more since. Uh, but that was certainly part of it, uh, especially uh, the government in secret of uh, getting the ability to gain access to all kinds of data um, on Americans, not just a few hundred or a few thousand, but millions, particularly metadata. Um, and these are very secret programs uh, that were in place for many years uh, after, after 9-11. And then there was the New York Times article. It came out in December 2005, and that really ignited quite a firestorm, and that's ultimately how I got caught up, because I was, became a target of a criminal investigation in the spring of 2006. 
Do you see that as a watershed moment? Because Edward Snowden has been quoted as saying, without Thomas Drake, there could be no Edward Snowden. Do you see that as marking the beginning of the country's now growing interest in civilian privacy? In terms of just public impact, public interest, uh, igniting not just a national debate, but even international debate, yes. Um, Myself and other colleagues had spent many years warning, as whistleblowers, warning uh, the nation and others what had actually happened. And that we've, you know, both security and privacy, uh, security and liberty, um, there's a tension. There's always been historical tension. It was particularly true after 9-11. But I think that really ignited the debate that we never really had before. And we're certainly having it now. And the debate has essentially escalated since then. Joining us now in studio is Richard Clark. He's a national security official who advised the National Security Council during both the George H.W. Bush and Clinton administrations before serving as a special cybersecurity advisor to George W. Bush, the president then. Richard Clark, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Kojo. Despite a heightened consciousness about privacy, many Americans still think that national security trumps personal privacy. How do you feel about the way these issues are being discussed? Should they be mutually exclusive? Well, I don't think they are mutually exclusive. And, you know, I served on a, an intelligence review panel for President Obama. Uh, five of us looked at this issue for um, many months and issued a report which is available publicly. Uh, and the thrust of that report, which came in the wake of the Snowden revelations, the thrust of that report was that liberty, civil liberties, privacy, uh, should not be uh, opposed to security. They should not be seen as opposing uh, elements in our society. What we should struggle to achieve in an American democracy is a way of having our civil liberties and our privacy and our security. We think that's possible. 800-433-8850 is the number. Do you think Washingtonians are more, well, sympathetic to consumer privacy or to national security? Why? 800-433-8850. Thomas Drake, I'd like to hear your opinion about the same thing, the balance, the delicate balance between national security and personal privacy. There's been this meme, this government meme, what I call the, the narrative, which I believe requires a counter-narrative that somehow um, security trumps privacy or when push comes to shove, national security takes privacy. Uh, over liberty. Um, it's a, That's a, basically a zero-sum game approach. Uh, it's either one or the other. Uh, I think Benjamin Franklin had something to say about that in terms of history. Uh, but I believe it's a both-and. Um, I believe, and I'm here I'm in alignment with, with Richard Clark's um, uh, earlier comment, um, we actually can have both. And in fact, the heart of the American experience, the heart of our Constitutional Republic and rule of law are the you know, time-honored and sanctioned uh, rights and freedoms. And in my case, I grew up in two uh, republics before they became states, um, Texas and Vermont, respectively. And if you go back to the beginnings of the U.S., those rights and freedoms, based on the experience we had had with the British, uh, were, were foundational to who we are as Americans. Richard Clark, this brings me to the issue of the FBI wanting to uh, access the San Bernardino phone and Apple resisting it. What is the FBI really hoping to accomplish with this request? Well, the FBI director says this is about one case, but it's not. And he knows it's not. This is part of an FBI campaign that's been going on for months 
to allow the FBI to get into products that are encrypted or otherwise secured. The FBI essentially wants to be able to say to any American company, you cannot create a product that we can't get into. Uh, and so if they can do that in this case, if they can compel an American company to take a product that was designed to be secure and force it to be not secure, that is a precedent. Uh, and it's a bad precedent. And frankly, uh, I'm no lawyer, Kojo, but it seems to me that the 1789 law on which the FBI is basing all of this uh, is probably a very weak read. And what we really need here is for the Congress to have a debate and to pass a new law. Uh, and I would like the administration to have a firm position uh, as that debate goes forward. I think the White House has been silent on this issue and let the FBI uh, make its argument. Uh, I find it very hard to believe that if you put constitutional lawyer uh, Barack Obama uh, on the other side of this microphone, that he would agree with the FBI. You have said that it is your view that the NSA could break into this phone? Oh, I think so. Uh, and that's why I think this is a, a phony debate. I think the FBI has looked for a case uh, where it would make its argument, a case that's emotionally charged, as San Bernardino is. And now the FBI has organized uh, the victims' families uh, to uh, make public statements and hire lawyers uh, on their side of the case. This is all about a PR campaign by the FBI. If they were really interested in getting into the phone, uh, I think all they would have to do would be to, under the Economy Act, uh, ask for the services of another agency of government, in this case NSA. The FBI request of Apple certainly isn't the first time government has requested special access past phone security. Can you tell us about the congressional attempt to bypass encryption going back to the 1990s? Well, there's been a debate going on. It was going on uh, at the beginning of the Clinton administration when I first started working on this issue at the White House, uh, where NSA and uh, the first Bush administration uh, wanted to make it illegal for uh, anyone in the United States to manufacture uh, or sell encrypted products, software or hardware, uh, unless there was an embedded key uh, that the government could use to open uh, that encryption with a court order. Uh, that attempt failed. Congress didn't support it, and ultimately the Clinton administration didn't support it. Now, essentially, it's come back, and we're essentially having the same argument today. And the argument is, can an American company make a product uh, that is inherently secure. Uh, and what the FBI is saying is, no, uh, we want to compel an American company to take a product that it has made, that's built security features into. We want to compel that company to defeat its own security features. You're hearing Richard Clark. He's the former National Security Coordinator for Security Infrastructure Protection and Counterterrorism for the United States. He joins us in studio with Thomas Drake, who's a former senior official at the National Security Agency. You both worked for the government. And I want to talk about the culture within the security agencies in the government because it would appear from what you are saying that there are quite a few senior officials in the government who are really interested in making sure that they at any point at which they desire can access the most private electronic information of the American people. 
Was that your observation while you were there, Thomas? It certainly became that. I mean, it's important to know for history that for 23 years, there was a legal regime under which NSA in particular, uh, not just but NSA in particular, had to operate because of violations of the rights of Americans in the preceding decades. This came under the Carter administration in 1978 with the passage of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Um, that was completely bypassed after 9-11, and the obsession became we just need the data. In fact, I was told that during my whistleblowing with one of the senior attorneys in the Office of General Counsel. You don't understand, Mr. Drake, we just need the data. So it didn't really matter, especially if it was for national security purposes, uh, to gain access to it. This does remind me, though, uh, this more recent the recent history in, involving the FBI and its, its quest to gain access even to um, equipment and devices that are encrypted. The Clipper, the Clipper chip uh, saga of the 1990s, some call that was the first sort of, sort of the crypto war. I think we're now sort of entering a crypto war 2.0. Uh, but some of the same arguments that were made then uh, that, you know, everything would go dark if you didn't have access. We need to have intercept technology. We need to have uh, access to any, any uh, device uh, that we so designed or so willed. Um, this is actually quite a bit different uh, and because of the advances in technology, and yet we're so incredibly dependent on that technology to secure our digital lives. And so there is an inherent tension here and a contradiction at the same time. 800 what forms of government surveillance would you allow it if if it protected against terrorism, 800-433-8850. You can send email to kojo at wamu.org. Shoot us a tweet at Kojo Show or go to our website, kojoshow.org, and join the conversation there. Um, Richard Clark, before I go to the phones, you mentioned that the FBI is using the San Bernardino attack because there is such a great deal of public sympathy for the victims of what happened there. But what are the broader implications if indeed the FBI can force Apple to unlock the phone? Well, from the FBI's perspective, the FBI wants to make their job easy. Of course they do. I understand that. Kojo, I'm for... Nine years, I was the most senior counterterrorism official in the United States. Correct. I know what it's like to have that burden on your shoulders every night, knowing as you go to bed that there may be a terrorist attack during the night, wondering if you've done everything possible that you could do. I know what the FBI feels like. They want everything. Policemen always want everything. <laughs> you know, and, and frankly, if it were up to them, we'd all wear ankle bracelets and all carry microphones around but we don't do that. So the question here is, where do we draw the line? We don't allow them to have everything, even with a court order. So where do we draw the line? And I think you draw the line uh, on the side of having privacy and encryption, because in the larger sense, beyond the FBI's job, the larger job of the government uh, is to ensure people's civil liberties around the world, not just here in the United States, <clears throat> and to safeguard information, valuable information in banks, in private companies, uh, and on our home computers. Here is Ivan in Scottsdale, Arizona. Ivan, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Thank you for taking my call. Um, I've thought about this for quite a while, and I think I've come up with the only solution that makes sense to me, and that is to give the phone to uh, Apple, let Apple do the encryption. That way the FBI doesn't get that encryption, and let them determine the messages that are on the phone and, I guess, selectively uh, transfer the information 
to the uh, FBI so that they can handle the details and leave the encryption to Apple. Thomas Drake, um, give the phone to Apple. Let Apple access the information and have Apple pass the information on to the FBI. I mean, Richard Richard Clark, not Thomas Drake. Well, I don't think the FBI would, would be happy with that. I think the FBI wants to see the data itself. It wants to run its fingers through it and play with it. I don't think it's going to be satisfied uh, having some Apple engineers say, well, I looked at it, and this is what I'm going to give you. Not going to happen. Ivan, here is Brian, who I think has a similar solution. Brian, your turn. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, I do. Um, I think we should never give up our encryption, especially with the banking on the phone and everything. I was thinking the exact same thing, and I never heard it on any radio station. Apple should. They are the experts. You wouldn't take your Volkswagen or your Mercedes to a, a Nissan dealer. Apple can undo the encryption, give them all the information, and print the data, record the data, and give it to the FBI because they are the makers of it. And then we, because if they lose in court, we all lose in court. And they probably won't lose in court this time, but the government is so good at tweaking things in court. It's like if I took one sentence of yours out of a paragraph, I can make you look really bad. I'm sure I could find something in a book you wrote and make you look bad in court because they say answer yeah, but the question. What would that open the floodgates to, Richard Clark? Would that mean that the government, whenever it felt like it, could ask my bank to provide it with my personal <laughs> Uh, accounts and all of the information in it, and the well, they already can. Give it to they already can ask for that, but they I'm have to go. Say that. But they have to go before a judge. Yes, uh, and they have to make a case. And in this case, they've only gone before a federal magistrate uh, who is relying on the 1789 law. <clears throat> and I think this is going to go up through the federal court system. And I suspect uh, judges are going to say there's not adequate law here to force Apple to do something that there's no legal basis for compelling them to do. They're not a phone company. They're not regulated by the Federal Communications Act. Uh, what they're being asked here to do is not to cough up something that they have, but to make a product less secure. I think the larger context I will just weigh in on here at, you know, at a higher level is, can the government actually compel a private company to build anything? There's a fundamental question there. Um, and I believe the answer is no. But I think there's a lot more at stake here. It does remind me, I used to work in a very technical environment. I used to do software and systems development. Um, I feel very much for any engineer who might face the prospect um, of essentially putting themselves in the place of Superman and being asked to actually create their own kryptonite. If you're an engineer who's developing secure encryption have spent many many years working on that type of code the last thing you're going to want to do is face the prospect of actually having to create software that would destroy it richard just last may a coalition of the nation's foremost tech firms and security experts appealed to the obama administration to protect privacy rights and in particular they were seeking protection from law enforcement that had become increasingly interested in bypassing encryption you signed on to that letter with that group. Why? Well, I did because I think encryption is essential. Uh, private companies have information that they need to be sure is safe, whether that's their engineering designs, their pharmaceutical designs, uh, whether it's financial transactions or business plans. 
Uh, we see every day, Kojo, major companies and major government agencies being hacked uh, by people from around the world. And the only way to prevent that hacking from being successful uh, is by encrypting the data and linking that encryption to good identity management. Uh, encryption is the key to securing our cyberspace. And for government to be suggesting that we should undermine or weaken encryption when we should, in fact, be doing the exact opposite. Tell you, all of the information about my life was stolen by the Chinese government off a government site. Uh, as Thomas knows, when you have high-level security clearances, you have to go through an, a very extensive vetting. All of that information was on a government site, and it was not encrypted. Therefore, China has it. It should have been encrypted. In fact, we should encrypt everything all the time. Uh, the fact that the United States, and a part, one part of the United States government is trying to undermine encryption when we should be going in the other direction is really discouraging. What was the government's response to that letter? Well, the, the government, uh, actually, I think President Obama decided uh, in about the October time frame uh, that he was not going to support the FBI's desire uh, for new legislation, uh, that he was not going to ask for a change in the law so that the FBI could get into encryption. And the FBI hasn't given up, even though it lost that first round with the president. Thomas Drake, given what seems to be an increasing public interest and corporate interests um, in privacy. Are whistleblowers any safer today? Well, we're still having whistleblowers in spite, of, in spite of the ability of the government to access all kinds of data. I think anywhere you have people of conscience who exercise their moral agency, they will continue to speak out about wrongdoing and fraud, waste and abuse and threats of public safety and health. Um, they really are the, uh, the canary in the coal mine of democracy. Um, and so as as a whistleblower, I certainly, uh, you know, even Obama himself, President Obama himself, you know, during during his first campaign, uh, spoke very highly about whistleblowers and the critical role they play uh, in our democracy. It's just it's quite ironic and I would even say quite hypocritical to have become the administration has gone after far more whistleblowers with the under the Espionage Act than all other administrations combined. And finally, here's Patrick in Bethesda, Maryland. Patrick, you're on the air. Go ahead, please. Yes, hello. Thank you. Uh, I was just uh, wanted to call and ask about the uh, what debate, if any, has been had concerning there. A lot of focus has been had on national security implications of being able to surveil individuals and consumers, but by opening up uh, phones and technology, uh, I, presumably there are substantial national security implications for senior government officials and and those that are using these same phones uh, for official business. So uh, has that debate been had, and what uh, direction has that conversation been going in? Thank you. Richard Clark? Well, the government officials um, use phones, at least they should use phones provided by uh, NSA, which have a, a much higher level of encryption uh, and therefore should be safer. Although the, the truth is, uh, when you're a practitioner uh, in the national security field, running around the world, uh, in crises, you slip up, and occasionally you do use an open line uh, or you do use your cell phone. Uh, and the fact that those things are not secure uh, is a risk not only to the government but to everybody who uses them. This is a case of balancing interests, Kojo. We want security. Can we achieve security without violating civil liberties? We have to work hard at that, but I think we can. 
Richard Clark, he's the former National Security Coordinator for Security Infrastructure Protection and Counterterrorism for the United States. Thank you so much for joining us. Thomas Drake is a former senior official at the National Security Agency. Tom Drake, good to see you again. Yes, thanks for having me, Kojo. I'm Kojo Namdi. Thanks for listening to The Kojo Namdi Show. And if you're already a member of WAMU 88.5, thank you for your support. If not, it's easy to give online at wamu.org. Just click the Donate button, and thanks.